Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 111, recorded on March 31st, 2021. The Cloud Pod now available at 9600 BPS, 8 bits, and 1 stop bit. Good evening, guys. How's it going? Good, Justin. How are you? Good. A little nostalgia there in the, in the show title today with a little serial console love. Uh, remembering when you said those wrong, how all of a sudden your switch just went down because it added a ton of characters you didn't mean to. <laughs> so my, my network roots came back out on that one pretty quickly. So, well, it's another fantastic week. We're here at April, you know, finally, I, you know, a hundred years since I think about a year ago in March, we started this, you know, pandemic version of the show where we just, you know, complain about how long it's been, but it really has been a long time. <laughs> it's now, you know, 105 years of COVID. But, you know, we are all getting closer to vaccines and all the great things. And so hopefully, you know, we get back to conferences maybe by the end of the year. We'll see how that goes. But at the prediction year for 2021, I said that I thought vertical clouds would be a big deal. And apparently VentureBeat has now agreed with me as they have hosted a whole article on industry clouds, which when you read into the those are basically verticalized clouds. And then VentureBeat apparently stole that from me. So I will take credit for that. VentureBeat, I'll take my check whenever you can send it to me. <laughs> And, you know, so they have a whole article about why they believe that industry clouds are of interest and will be a big defining moment of cloud. Uh, some Most of the arguments that I have already on this as well. And I've talked about these at many conferences and other podcasts that I've been on. I've mentioned this particular prediction. So I feel vindicated when VendorBeat covers me as well. <laughs> <laughs> they should have gotten a yeah. quote from you. They blew it. They should have. They should have. Like I could have Googled. They would know that I was, that's my, my stance. It's been that way for a while. So. VentureBeat Press can contact Justin at thecloudpod.net. <laughs> exactly. Let's talk about it. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on to Amazon news this week. So this first one, Red Hat OpenShift service on AWS is now generally available, which is a bit surprising because I don't remember going into beta. And I've been doing this show long enough now that I know that most things don't slip by me like that. That would be a pretty big one. But, you know, if you were thinking about different solutions or on your container on Amazon, you know, maybe you wanted to use ECS, but you're like, ew, vendor lock-in, you know, EKS, but, you know, Kubernetes is super complicated. You know, Fargate-backed, it's, you know, EKS and ECS, that's lock-in and complexity. And so really what you wanted was a platform as a service. And that's what the Redshift OpenShift services on AWS, or ROSA for short, will give you. ROSA provides you a fully managed OpenShift service with joint support from AWS and Red Hat. It has an AWS integrated experience for cluster creation, a consumption-based billing model, and a single invoice for AWS deployments. If you're familiar with Red Hat OpenShift, it's basically Kubernetes, but as a platform as a service. So you basically define, I want a Node.js container, and it does all the magic for you in the background behind a standard API and a standard GUI model. Billing for the service is available to you as an hourly or pay-as-you-go and or annual commitments, and is only one bill from AWS to get no through Red Hat licensing and your uh, Amazon service. The cluster fee for this is basically $263 a year or 0.03 cents per cluster hour for each OpenShift cluster. And then you pay for the worker nodes as well for 17 cents per four vCPUs or $1,400 per node per year. Or you can reduce that to 11 cents per four CPU on a one-year commit to get you them for $998 a node per year. This is all on top, of course, of the EC2 costs, which are additional to that and any other AWS services that you may be using in this particular model. So this is not a cheap service, but if you like the advantage of platform as a service and you can't make Convox work, this is for you. I think the no-brainer here is people who are currently running on OpenShift and want to migrate to the cloud. I mean, they could have always ran OpenShift on top of EC2, you know, with COPS and all the other different Kubernetes implementations. Yeah. 
I think Red Hat actually had that out of the box. You could just run it on AWS or Azure or GCP. So this is the only thing you're really getting here is a single bill. You don't have to have a contractual relationship with IBM Red Hat. You can just have it with Amazon and you get them supporting you as well as Amazon supporting you really with this service, which is nice. Yep. It's pretty good because, I mean, Fargate's not available in all the regions yet anyway, I don't think. So it's, it fills the gap for people who want to use some kind of container orchestration if Amazon haven't filled that hole for them yet. I don't. Is this available in all regions? It's available in at least the big ones. So, you know, I don't know if this is... The, I would assume these are the same regions that actually have uh, Fargate because, like, I see Ireland, I see Mumbai, I see Asia Pacific for Seoul, Korea, and Tokyo, etc. So I don't know. But, yeah, maybe... Again, I, I kind of agree with Peter. It's probably for the people who are running OpenShift already. They want to continue to extend it. They don't want to manage OpenShift. They just want to have that taken care of for them. And this might be a really great service for them. Just got me going through the OpenShift documentation again, just to like refresh what some of the options are, because it's been a while since I looked at it. It just didn't, and it still annoys me. It's the way they advertise this one. They have like different pages for like, if you're in IT support, if you're a developer and they, they seemingly like disagree with each other, you know, like it's, if you're a developer, it's, you don't want to manage all that complex software. You just want all the tools that you're used to. If you're in IT support, you don't want to manage all that IT software. <laughs> like, it's yeah. just like, it's, <laughs> but it's like, okay, you know, like, and I get it. It's the, the I get what the, the tool is and I get the gap that it's trying to fill, but it's, it's also one of those things where I feel like it just puts you on this big platform and the one way to deploy everything. And then all your edge cases that you'll certainly have. And if you wanted a platform as a service on top of AWS, like I mentioned Convox earlier, but there's also Heroku, which also runs on Amazon EC2 and basically gives you the same capability. Just so you don't get the exposure to the container layer like you do with OpenShift. And I think the pricing is going to be a little higher on Heroku for the same compute power. Maybe. I don't know. Salesforce bought them, and I, I've i not seen Heroku do a lot these days, so I feel like you probably negotiate pretty hard on the Heroku side. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Get that revenue back up over at Salesforce. Well, if you are using the open distro for OpenTelemetry, you can now add StatsD and Java support to the list of things that OpenTelemetry can do for you. The 0.8 release is now available with StatsD support in the collector and a stable Java 1.0 support with auto instrumentation agent for observing your Java applications. StatsD receiver allows you to collect StatsD metrics for exporting to your preferred monitoring service, and the receiver will send them to CloudWatch for you automatically if you want that as well. AWS Distro for OpenTelemetry also includes a stable 1.0.2 reversion of the OpenTelemetry Java library, which gets you that auto instrumentation support I just mentioned. So glad to see the continued investment in OpenTelemetry. I haven't quite figured out how to use this yet. So working on the details of that, like how would I use this versus the CloudWatch agent? And you know, at what point does the CloudWatch agent just get surpassed by the OpenTelemetry agent and you just use OpenTelemetry for everything? It's kind of what I would think would be the future state, but I'm not really sure yet. I think, yeah, it's a little different level too. I mean, CloudWatch is, you know, prescribed logging logs and metrics versus, you know, telemetry is more tracing, I think, right? So you're looking at threads and stuff at the Java level, and it's reporting that in to one of these aggregating agents in true observability fashion. You guys are wild. I can just, uh-huh. I can see the excitement on both of your faces, Peter and Jonathan. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Monitoring. So exciting. Nothing like tracing to really excite. Uh, Logs are not what I want to think about this time of day. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, if you are in the DevOps space, you may be looking for DevOps metrics and particularly for things like the cloud commit, cloud build, cloud deploy, family of products from AWS. And that data is all available to you and via CloudWatch, but Amazon has given you the easy button with a bunch of DevOps monitoring dashboards for automating the setup of your DevOps metrics. The dashboards collect and analyze metrics across all the AWS developer tools and views them in a single dashboard, allowing you to start measuring MTTR of change failure rates, deployment frequencies, deployment status, and code change volumes over time. Available to you via the solutions library now. Pretty interesting. So making it super... I mean, we're using this for... Like SLA management, maybe MTTR. I mean, so most of this solution is it's. I always find the the Amazon solutions that they provide in the library very fascinating because it shows me that you know it's like they realize how hard using some of their tools are, and that they have a bunch of customers asking for reference deployments and how would I use this? Visibility across your pipeline tools for for the Amazon products has always been, you know, a little hard to do. They're adding improvements very fast, but you know, there's a, they have a lot of catch up to do compared to some of their competitors who have built it out into the platform from day one. And, you know, like you look at the reference implementation of this and it is very fascinating to me. It is a Rube Goldberg machine to get this dashboard working. Like you have your pipeline tools that you have to have previously deployed. And then those publish specific events into the event bridge, which goes into Kinesis Firehose, which goes, you know, and it's just like, you look through all the little boxes. I'm like, oh, I'm glad they did this because that is complicated and would be really hard to set up if you were trying to visualize an end-to-end flow from check-in to deployment and time across it all. I mean, my first problem is getting all of my devs to start taking advantage of code build, code commit, and code deploy to even get advantage of this DevOps thing. But, you know, I think that's interesting to give at least the metrics, but then you know, you mentioned the solutions library being a bit Rube Goldberg. I think that's all the solutions I've seen in the solutions library. They're all, oh yeah. you know, I look at it, I'm like, yes, you have used every possible Amazon service you could use to make this thing work. <laughs> and I think there was some easier buttons you could have taken in the process at many times. Oh, uh, so I don't know. I mean, because I always take it that when a solution is too complex for them to sort of productize, they dump it in the solutions library. And so it's like, it almost seems like a prerequisite, which is the, the starting point is like, this is really difficult for customers. We better provide something. It's like their version of MVP. It was like life cycle. Yeah. Right? Life cycle. First, you throw the reference architecture out, then you put it in the solutions, then you release your first beta version of something that's, then you go GA, but it's super expensive to keep people away for a little while. And then you get your feet under you and goes GA. Or, yeah, then the price comes down for mass adoption. We've definitely seen solutions library stuff kind of become product features later. And so maybe it's kind of how they do MVP now. They're like, we'll put it in the solutions library. We'll see how people download the solution and how many people are actually using it. And then we'll we'll see if it's worth investing the time and effort into actually productizing this thing. Okay. Well, in, in my previous life, when we were professional services for a big co-location provider, who was also a managed service provider, that's what we do. We develop custom solutions. And then once we did three, four, five of them, get the managed services team on board, they would operationalize something and then... It was on the price list and we'd stop doing the thing that we were doing custom and hand all those leads off to them. I could see it being similar. They're going to automate me out of a job though. You know, these crazy Rube Goldberg solutions are, you know, my bread and butter. So, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you get Sherlock every year at reInvent. So, I mean, they're trying to get you out of a job every year. (laughs) Yet somehow every year you seem to be like a cockroach. (laughs) Yeah. Does that happen? (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't quite make sense, does it? Yeah. Yeah, we've automated away millions of jobs in America and pre-COVID at least, unemployment had never been lower. So, 
Well, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that this new solutions library outputs metrics. And so, of course, when you have metrics, you want to detect anomalies in metrics. And Amazon Lookout, which was announced as a product at reInvent was in beta, is now generally available to let you look at those metrics and identify anomalies automatically. A Lookout for Metrics is an ML service that detects anomalies or unexpected changes in your metrics, helping you proactively monitor the health of your business, diagnose issues, and find opportunities quickly with no machine learning experience required. So this is perfect for Ryan. This service is designed to help you identify things like unexpected dips in your revenue, increased rates of abandoned shopping carts, spikes in business transaction failures, or increases in new user signups. And these are just examples they gave you because, this, again, this is an Amazon-branded product, which means it came from the store side. But again, it, it looks at any set of metrics you want to give it, and it'll then identify baseline deviations. So very similar to some of the things we've seen in CloudWatch. You can use this for all kinds of different outputs and use cases and make your improvements to monitoring. It does leverage 19 different data sources today, including a popular Amazon services such as S3, CloudWatch, Redshift, RDS, and SaaS apps like Sales. Salesforce, Marquito, and Amplitude to continuously monitor your metrics customers care about and you should care about as well. Does it just check on uh, your metrics from your own accounts or does it check on your competitors' metrics too? He's <laughs> 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 oh, just trying already to win the lightning round. He's always trying. It's just that works. It's great. Well, the next service is the Amazon Elasticsearch service announces Autotune feature for improved performance and application availability. Of course, Elasticsearch now supports the automated memory management of EES clusters with the new Autotone feature. It's an adaptive resource management system that automatically adjusts Elasticsearch internal settings to handle dynamic workloads, optimize cluster resources to improve efficiency and performance. And with Autotune, you can achieve a performance boost for ingestion for your log analytics workloads or reduce tail latencies for your search queries. And this is all about really optimizing the JVM and memory settings of Elasticsearch to support your largest and most critical workloads with Elasticsearch. Now, on this one, I I wish Amazon would actually give this out as open source because this is definitely a major pain point for many, many companies on Elasticsearch. And not just Amazon and their managed service. And like, if you're going to open source the open distro, please put this in the open distro so we can actually use this. I think this is nice, but please don't keep it to yourselves. They will. <laughs> for sure. That's okay, because I'll probably end up using the managed service because it does this for me. You know? Yeah, like exactly. That's why they'll keep it. It's This yeah. is a huge, like, it's such a nightmare to manage these things. Is memory management the biggest issue with Elasticsearch? Or is, like... Disk I.O. management, the issue. Oh, there are so many issues with Elasticsearch. <laughs> this is going to be a long podcast. Get comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I always felt like it was disk. Like disk I.O. was the biggest thing. Even disk I.O. Well, is also very incredibly difficult to manage. I would say managing your data structure is the hardest, especially if you have dynamic workloads feeding into that cluster. Yeah. We actually just moved away from the really super fast SSD instances back to GP3. Oh, because it, it, you know, disk was not a constraint. Oh, okay. What was? <laughs> Elasticsearch. <laughs> <laughs> code, just the, the code. All of that. Well, I mean, like, you think about the memory stuff, you know, there's there's a bunch of weird things about memory mansion and JVM, if you're familiar with JVM in general, around 64-bit memory address space versus 32-bit addressable memory space. And even for like looking at most what Elasticsearch recommends, you can find a thousand different recommendations across you know all these different blog posts and like and Elasticsearch doesn't even give you a really good answer for like well it depends on your workload. I'm like yeah that doesn't help me. <laughs> like this is my workload. What should it be? And they're you know like oh well, we don't recommend going above the you know 32 bit limitation of the memory register. 
And so, you know, you supposed to set it to like one bit below that per this document, but then the other document will say, you know, oh, it needs to be a gigabit below that number. Like it just like there's so much confusion in their documentation from Elasticsearch alone. And then you cap factor in the open distro and all the other ways these things are being implemented. And then there's the other challenge you go into is you either can optimize a cluster for ingestion or you can optimize it for search, but you can't really get high performance on both of them at the same time. And so that's a big challenge as well, typically with Elasticsearch. Can you schedule? Like I want, I want search during you business can. hours. <laughs> you can do your ingestion at night. You can. I mean, a lot, a lot of the problem is that a lot of the tuning is done at the cluster level and not at the tier level. You know, so you, you can't just tune these hot ingestion nodes to, to do one thing and then all the other nodes to do a different thing. They need to kind of be a bit more granular in the in the settings. Yeah, some settings are super granular at the index level. You know, it's interesting which choices they made, and it really shows like the sort of the history of how what Elasticsearch's, you know, core function was, you know, when it came out as part of being part of the application, a very controlled data set. And then now as it's been used more and more for, you know, providing a logging solution as they've exposed it. And I, you know, it's, it's funny to me, like you can see the choices in, in some of those settings, what choices are cluster specific and what are at the index level. We should do a whole series on this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Me and Jonathan will do like little whole separate RSS feed for just complaining about Elasticsearch. Yeah, like I say we can we can do a special TCP talk series, you know, like four episodes. Jonathan and Ryan give you their opinions on Elasticsearch with yeah. booze. Yeah. There will yeah. be booze. I might, I might take you up on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely listen. All right. Well, the next one I am super excited about, mostly because I switched to Visual Studio Code last year as my preferred IDE. Uh, which we talked about here on the show before. But one of the things was if you're using the Amazon Toolkit, which is a great way to get into like Lambda and all kinds of other great Amazon integrations with your VS code, you'd have to give it access keys, which was kind of a bummer. And also a nightmare when you're dealing with a largely federated account structure with you know several hundred accounts that you're managing. Account keys are kind of awful. So with the newest release of the AWS Toolkit for VS Code, customers can now use federated credentials, MFA, and Amazon single sign-on to connect Visual Studio Code directly to AWS, and this supports AWS or AD, AWS SSO, or an external IDP connected to AWS SSO, eliminating the need for static access keys or credential files, which I... Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, this has to be the biggest attack vector when we see companies having issues with breaches. So many access keys to manage, and in so many people's hands who you have to make sure they're trained up on what to do with them and what not to do with them. Yeah. Especially when you're trying to do least privileged and, you know, single use sort of accounts, like it just, it balloons really fast and it's very difficult to manage. So anytime you can, especially rotating, like it's really hard to rotate them in a reasonable time frame that meets any of the CIS benchmarks. You know, like they want you to rotate those things like every 30 to 90 days. And it's like, yeah. I can't tell you the last time I rotated mine. <laughs> so other than when I... I, I can. Know. It's in Trusted Advisor, and it's been 9,693 days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, I forgot that Trusted Advisor will tell me that. But thank you. Unless I went and looked at that, I'm still blissfully unaware of how long I've had my access key. So. Last week in a Google announcement, we talked about 50 gigabit, 75 gigabit, and 100 gigabit networking coming to some of the Google servers. And so it was interesting this week, there was an interesting article on the information.com where the Amazon is allegedly working on a new networking silicon chip to speed up the performance of app servers in its cloud data centers and for their AI services. And apparently this is the first step Amazon's taking to seize control over a key component in its technology with a chip designed to power the hardware switches that power their cloud. This is being developed, of course, by Annapurna Labs, which, by the way, they mentioned this article, they only paid $350 million for Annapurna Labs. Did you 
do you guys know that? Like, I didn't realize how cheap it got for. Like, if they bought that now, that'd be billions of dollars to try to buy that company. Yeah. This will apparently reduce their reliance on Broadcom, which Amazon has apparently a frosty relationship with, partially due to their CEO being a bit of a bully, which, you know, Amazon has that problem too these days. So, you know, I don't know <laughs> how much of the difference that actually really is going to be. But they're looking to drive down latency and make their cloud servers indistinguishable from servers operated in your private cloud. And apparently information also reports that Microsoft and Google are working on their own silicon projects with the hiring of Yuri Frank at Google, a veteran chip person from Intel, as well as Microsoft reportedly designing its own chips or servers and service computers to lessen its reliance on Intel. Uh, so bad days for Intel, exciting days for us when we get faster networking on EC2 instances, and overall just a good good time all around with custom silicone chips. Mm, everyone suddenly just realized that it's much cheaper to build their own anymore than it is to license the technology from somebody else. I wonder, yeah, I mean, that, that seems like one of those chicken and the egg things, and so I wonder if what has changed really to make the price point come down enough to make that true? I would think it's scale, just the scale. Probably the just sheer scale. Yeah. 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 I mean, I even saw this week new ARM architecture, you know, it's going to set the foundation for the next 10 years of ARM chips. You know, I'm recording this podcast on an ARM-based Mac that I love. Like, you know, I have a 16-inch Intel-based MacBook that's mine that I use for most of my heavy lifting. But, you know, with, with my little desk and stuff here, I have this Mac Mini. And the Mac Mini outperforms my Intel box regularly. It's just crazy. And it has, you know, a significantly less RAM than my Mac does because I have the fully maxed out. Because I run containers, Ryan, <laughs> that they take a lot of memory. <laughs> you know, so I do all those things. And so it's, it's just amazing to me how powerful the new Macs are. And so you know, it just really shows how how far behind Intel has really fallen in the last few years. Especially, like, they just released new chips, the 11900 series, I think, from Intel. They're performing garbage. Like, the, the metrics just are not good compared to AMD. It's an interesting time in chips in general, as well as there's a huge shortage across the globe right now, chip manufacturing in general, but that's a whole other conversation for another time. Yeah, I mean, and also, this becomes a differentiator between cloud providers. If they're all selling the same chip, then they're effectively a commodity. And if they're making their own chip, that could potentially be higher performance, lower cost, et cetera, then, you know, like there's their platform an advantage. Has the NVIDIA ARM deal been approved yet or is it still uh, under review? I think it's under review. Mm. Yeah, from what I was reading about the ARM 9 architecture, I'm tempted to throw some money at NVIDIA if, if that actually, if that acquisition happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And even Google are looking at pivoting their their Pixel phones to their own CPU architecture too. So it's happening everywhere. It'd be very interesting if certain workloads will only be able to run on certain clouds just because of the architecture. Yeah. So like, because that's been, you know, the big push, you know, for everyone is to have, you know, multi-cloud and to have the ability to move from one to the other. And this puts a whole interesting wrench in those works. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, those that, that's already at work, right? With with all the proprietary services like BigQuery and Aurora. Mm, I think with the custom silicon will be will come down to some very specific, highly optimized cases. So Google will most likely optimize for their machine learning, you know, TensorFlow type workloads. Who knows what Amazon they're going to optimize for? I would imagine they would do the same thing because they're after the same business. Yeah, they'll have, you know, solutions for networking and AI and all the, yeah. Well, then, you know, if you're a large enough customer, then do you partner with Amazon to build custom chips for your workload in the future at some point as well? Like, there's all kinds of ways you could take this in different directions to specialize chips for your need. Or, like, you know, now we have, 
you know, C5 versus, you know, M5 because compute versus memory, right? And you could even go to even more degrees of distinction between that where you get, you know, hundreds of CPU cores and very little RAM because you don't care about RAM. And like you could do some really cool instance types as you kind of go down this path in the future, but um, still really early days. So I did some real-time follow-up here for you, Jonathan. They have not closed the acquisition yet. You know, there's a couple articles in Forbes was saying it should be approved. There's an article here where it says Qualcomm is very upset about it and is, you know, basically telling the government not to let it happen. So it's very much still undecided at this point. But, uh, you know, there's a raft of articles that say it's a terrible thing. And others are saying it's an amazing thing. And they should totally get to do it. So we'll keep an eye on that for you. So when I started in the cloud forever ago, <laughs> I don't even know how long ago now, one of the things that you know, you would run into very early on was, especially if you're trying to do on custom AMIs, was that your server wouldn't boot. And so then, you know, you're kind of screwed because there's no way to really troubleshoot on Amazon. And then at some point, Amazon produced the screenshot, which you could see what your console looked like at any given time, which was really not helpful other than to tell you, oh yeah, I screwed up the hard drive configuration, which is what that error is basically telling me that I can't fix. And so it's always been kind of the, you know, like, yeah, there's really nothing to do once you've screwed up. You just start over and, and begin again, which, you know, makes you know, database operations sometimes very problematic <laughs> if you're not careful. But Amazon, you know, however many years after EC2 has finally fixed this problem for me. And they are now giving you the ability to connect to an EC2 instance via the serial console. So you can automatically, you know, be able to log in, do all of the, the things like fix missing hardware drivers, fix your file system mess ups, all, all the terrible, terrible things I've done to hard drives over the years I could undo, <laughs> especially you know, trying to understand some of the partitioning logic and some of the layer versions of Linux was a bit tricky at first. All good problems that you can now solve. Don't overdo the first bit. Yeah. Don't overdo that one. <laughs> so this is the EC2 serial console, a simple and secure way to troubleshoot boot and network connectivity issues by establishing a serial connection to your EC2 instance. This supports only the AWS Nitro systems, of course, and it supports all major Linux, FreeBSD, NetBSD, Windows, and VMware operating systems. And the only requirement to make this work is that you have a root account that has been assigned a password as this is how you log into it, which of course is a terrible anti-pattern for the cloud. But you know, if this is something you really need, you can set this up in advance, which once the server doesn't boot, you're already screwed on this one. So this is one of those things you have to kind of plan for it ahead of time that you're going to screw it up and then you can then go in and fix it. This is apparently an account-wide setting to turn this on. So you don't have to turn this on. You can disable it via SCP. But once it's turned on, you can then limit access to it via SCP and IAM permissions as any other type of service. And again, you are setting a root password at this point, which is not always best practice. That's something you have to then maintain in your secrets manager implementation or whatever that may be. This is available to you at no additional cost in Virginia, Oregon, Ohio, Ireland, Frankfurt, Tokyo, Sydney, and Singapore. And, you know, something I thought I would never get again, I now have access to again, which is to fix my server at the console level. This is one of those things that I thought I would miss when I transitioned from doing like primarily data center sort of automation and to public cloud. I was like, how? Because, you know, this is something when you're operating physical hardware, this is a big thing in your life. You're constantly messing these things up. And so I thought I would miss it. And then it, it wasn't until the release of this that I, I kind of looked back and I realized that I haven't. I haven't missed this. And so it is interesting. <laughs> I don't have any workloads where I've needed to do this. You know, a lot of my deployment architecture has changed, probably to avoid some of these things. Like I don't do as many crazy things with dismounts and other things, but it's interesting. Yeah, I'd say if you're going to do this, go ahead and create a dedicated account. That is the only account that you enable it in. And then define the things that people do in that account, like create... AMIs would be an obvious example of something you do in this account. 
It's super useful. I can't wait for somebody to like connect a serial mouse to it or some other kind of serial device. <laughs> <laughs> How about a modem? Dial out from from AC2. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it supports anything other than a console at this point, but maybe in the future. <laughs> I've been digging know. into it. We'll find a way. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it must be useful for people working with enclaves, though, because enclaves have no network connectivity in or out. And just it's such a slow process to try and boot something up, see it fail, try and figure out what's going on from logs or something else. It's, it must be it's a necessity for anyone doing some serious work with enclaves. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't have any workloads where I've I've really looked into it, but it seems sort of because of, if I want it in an enclave, I don't want access to it anyway, right? So why would I? Yeah, I get maybe during development, it's open in this account, and not in the other account. But, you know, I don't know. It just seems so odd. I mean, you think you could have built better enclave troubleshooting tools <laughs> versus giving serial console access. But, you know, I mean, this is what you want to do and you treat your, your servers like pets that you want to maintain and, and care for long term. This is something you need. And I've just taken the religion of cattle and that I kill servers that are misbehaving versus trying to fix them. And so for me, I don't know that I'm ever going to enable this other than to play with it in maybe a test account just to say I did it. But beyond that, I don't know that I'd ever use this feature. But I'm, you know, am I glad it's there? Yes. Again, will I use it? No. Until you need to. And then you'll be super glad it's there. <laughs> But no, I won't be able to use it because I haven't set up root passwords. Like that's the like the reality is you have to have enough forethought in advance to go set up your root passwords to actually be able to use this functionality to even begin with. So you you know you have to have some level of preparation that you're going to use it. And like right now, my stance is well, I'm not ever going to use this, so I'm not going to go set it up. Which maybe is the wrong attitude. I should go set it up in the case that I ever do possibly need it. But you'll know if you need it ahead of time because you'll be doing things like compiling custom kernels and things like that. I imagine this is for the people who are either work with enclaves or working with like highly optimized VMs, like uh, monokernels, that kind of thing, where the kernel boots up and it is the application. I mean, Amazon is customer obsessed, right? They only deliver the features that customers are asking for. So like, I would imagine their own engineering team probably asked for this feature. Yeah, <laughs> I would think their own engineering team would have a different access, but maybe not. I guess they don't really have a lot of access to customer exactly. access. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Moving out of AWS world to GCP world. You know, GCP likes to do a lot of these uh, very you know, case study and very hypothetical, theoretical articles. And typically I don't talk about them here on the show because they're, you know, they are what they are. They're good, but, you know, they're not helpful for our listeners. But this one was actually interesting because it was from the professional services team, Alex McWilliam in the professional services group at GCP saying, you know, it's time to rethink, rehost, replatform, and rearchitect, and really move to cloud migration for the real world. And, you know, this is all about the R migration strategies, which we've been using now forever. 
and is a well-known industry practice, you know, really started by AWS, adopted by Azure, Google's begrudgingly apparently followed the same model. But Google contends that they aren't really strategies at all, but rather placeholders for all things you don't yet know about your applications. And he also contends that no app falls squarely into any one migration strategy, which I do agree with that. I don't think every, that part I agree. What customers really need is a holistic approach to migration, and this is where their PS team comes in. And they highlight really three migration approaches that they encourage and feel deliver the right value to a business. And they call them basically the migration factory approach, which is that you, you know, literally copy or deploy virtual machines or containers in bulk. Works great for simple and similar applications that the team handling the migration can execute it autonomously without needing to coordinate with much with individual app to owners or teams. It's great for an infrastructure-led team rather than an application-led migration, but it falls down with manual change management processes and manual reviews, and it's problematic if you need to make changes to your CI/CD toolchain before you can deploy to the cloud. So this is really lift and shift, but a more repetitive lift and shift. I do like that concept of, you know, infrastructure-led versus application-led, because I think that is kind of the difference between a lift-and-shift migration and a non-lift-and-shift migration. Again, I think there's opportunities in this to, you know, for shades of gray, but this is the first one. The next one up is the Greenfield software development. This is born on the cloud, baby. Born to roll. Deploy develop a new Greenfield or cloud-native app on the cloud. Follow agile practices. A newly developed app is a product, not a project. It must not be abandoned after the work is done. And it's not great, though, if you have a schedule to meet, like your data center shutting down in six months. And it takes considerably more time to build new software on the cloud versus migrating. And then the last one, which is actually Ryan and Jonathan and I actually took this process and working with Foghorn, actually built the exact same thing. The Modernization Factory, which is the majority of migrations Google see fall into this camp uh, with a degree of modernization coming on an app-by-app basis. And then Google asserts that the most customers lose their true TCO savings through incremental modernizations and the big driver of why improving their DevOps capabilities naturally goes hand-in-hand with cloud adoption. To take this approach, you take an inventory of the current estate and you mutually agree on a limited set of target cloud services and automation via CI/CD and infrastructure code and anything after that is postponed until after the app has moved to cloud. It requires a hybrid team construct composed of small cross-functional app teams that's familiar with the individual applications plus a factory team that's familiar with the portfolio as a whole. And so this is, when, you know, in our parlance, we talked about this as zero-day changes versus day-one changes and day-90 changes and things like that. So we would basically inventory the application, look at the architecture, see what could be replaced with Amazon services natively or Google services natively. What do we have to change before it moves to get it there to make it not be cost-effective? And then everything else is in your roadmap for the next six months to 12 months to actually get cloud native. And I think that's the best approach, to be honest, and something we've been doing for a while. But, you know, it's interesting to see their take on it and you're kind of redefining the R strategy. So that's why I shared it with you guys. I'm sure. Yeah, Yeah. I think it's cool. You know, I think that Amazon has like six R's, a few more categorizations, but all of them follow this. And geez, this has been around since before the cloud. And we've been doing migration since long before the cloud existed. So but I think they're all a mix, which basically means they all end up some form of modernization factory. And I think that the more technically adept and you know talented your team is, the more you can take on during modernization, during that migration. And the less skills you have on board a lot of times, or the shorter time frame you have, it's just, you know, the bare minimum and the absolute minimum would be the migration factory approach, which I've seen as well. I mean, I've seen, you know, companies who simply are coming, say, off of a managed service where they have no capability and all they know is they need to get off of their existing provider prior to contract expiration. And so their only option is lift and shift and sort of figure it out later, which is nice, though, because once you get to the cloud, you could figure it out incrementally. You're not 
you know, stuck in a three-year extension of a contract. Imagine the cloud providers like that model too, because you start using their services much more quickly, <laughs> and it, yeah. it, it kind of drags those. It can drag those migrations out, though. I think maybe I'd go for a little more planning ahead of time and try and get some engineering work before we start investing in the cloud, because otherwise you end up burning things on-prem and in the cloud at the same time, and those cloud environments get costly after a while before you know they get fully up to speed. True, but if you you know if you bite off more than you can chew in the modernization portion. We've seen customers who just, they, they can't get as much done as they thought they wanted to, and they end up with one foot in each, paying twice for a lot longer than they had planned, and then their CFOs get mad. Well, the other one that happens quite often is companies will get distracted by the CICD pipeline stuff, and they'll spend you know a year to two years working on CICD automation, and you're going to get that right. And then they, you know, they're not moving to the cloud. <laughs> That's yeah. why they're doing that work. And then, you know, someone in the CIO or CTO office is all of a sudden like, we haven't moved forward on our cloud strategy for two years. And it's like, you know, yeah, there's a need for the CICD tooling to be right. There's a need for all that stuff, but you also have to make progress in the migration. That's where, you know, Greenfield kind of helps you out on some of those things where you say, yeah, we're setting up the foundation for the move of the existing stuff, but all the new Greenfield stuff can start in the cloud. We can start working in that direction. You can start showing wins and then maybe get a couple of lift and shifts in there too, just to show that that can be done and then really focus on the modernization long-term. But I think, you know, a lot of companies see that CICD investment as a, as a distraction from the cloud migration. And actually it's one of the big enablers of cloud migration. For sure. I like that they spell out the migration factory approaches as they do. I don't know if it's just from my perspective where most of my lift and shift migrations I tend to back into. It's not really done intentionally. It's usually because of, you know, scope creep or, or timelines or something. That, so the idea of having that sort of like a process where you're just sort of gearing up towards it and trying to optimize that and make that as efficient as possible. I think it's a, a good thing to call out because I'm not I don't think that everyone's necessarily going to go into that project knowing that. I think it's important because one of the things I've seen happen is, you know, you you follow Greenfield, you follow modernization, that's your typical process. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have a migration factory product or it has a lift and shift and all of a sudden it gets lift and shifted and it's costing a fortune on AWS. And all of a sudden everyone's like, well, you know, look at that product, see how much it costs on AWS. It, you know, we can't afford that kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah but that's, that's not how we recommend doing it. That's a force function due to migration or data center shutdown or whatever other issue. You can't then use that as your bar for all future migrations because that's not the way you typically want to do it unless that's your strategy. But yeah, I don't recommend that strategy for anybody, to be honest, because it's very expensive. But just make sure that you're very transparent about which of these approaches you're taking and why and what the trade-offs are with your business, because I think that's it'll burn you later if you're not clear with the business that, yeah, we know the migration factor approach is going to cost a lot of money. It doesn't mean you don't have to do that early day zero modernization stuff I mentioned in a modernization factory, but you need to make sure you still have a roadmap for that product too, because just because you lift and shift, it doesn't mean it can't, it can just run at that expense forever. It has to be brought down into cloud native as soon as you can. Yeah. That first year is, is effectively part of the migration cost when you're running in your inefficient lift and shift mode. Yeah. I imagine a lot of CIOs and CFOs feel like it's a bait and switch, you know, when, when moving to the cloud, because almost every POC is a greenfield software development, you know, deployed on there. It's a very small, limited subset it's using cloud technologies. So it's scaling natively and all that because everyone wants to play with the new hotness. And then they start, they make the decisions based on that and the cost modeling from that. And they, you know, and then you get into the more migration and it's just not the same. And so it's, it feels like a bait and switch. So, you know, it makes it very unappealing for anyone who's, you know, 
cost conscious. Or you you give it to your infrastructure team and they do a migration with the lift and shift approach and then you know, you're now yelling at your vendor, like, I'm not getting any cost savings. I'm getting any of the stuff that I want to do. And then you have to replace your, your team that ran your cloud stuff because you've, you've messed this up, <laughs> you know, and they're, you're taking data center concepts and you move them to the cloud, which is never a good move either. Yeah. But VMware on AWS, VMware on GCP, VMware on Azure, it's, they're all going after that group of people who want to use lift and shift to get to the cloud. Cause I mean, I would say for traditional enterprise IT shops, there's a lot of lift and shift use cases where you're not going to modernize that application. And as long as you understand that going into it, I think that's acceptable. You know, when you're talking about software company or SaaS companies where you, you know, most of us live, that's a terrible approach because <laughs> you make revenue and, and you have costs associated to being a SaaS business that you need to maintain and manage. And I think that's the difference, right? And so the VMware option gives you the ability to take these really legacy, you know, curmudgeon old applications that you can't modernize or the vendors gone out of business or, you know, you just don't have time to change it out and actually get it to move, which is really why you're going down that path. Yeah, I guess there's a definite difference between whether or not you're providing the service or whether you're consuming the service that you're going to run in the cloud. Correct. All right. Well, BigQuery is a leader in the 2021 Forrester Wave cloud data warehouse category. AWS and Microsoft were very closely placed as well, but although Google was definitely the number one leader in the space, and Google is pretty pleased with their performance for this blog post in the space over the last 10 years, I want to thank their strong community of customers and partners for voicing their opinions, and the Forrester Wave gave them a score of 5 out of 5 across 19 different categories for BigQuery, which just shows if you pay Forrester a lot of money, they will put you in the top spot. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, and BigQuery has always been, you know, when people talk about what Google does really well, BigQuery is on the top of the list for almost yeah. everything. Yeah. It's just, a, it's just a great product. So this one I, I fully agree with. I think they are fully in the right place on this particular quadrant. Yeah. Or wave, as they like to call them in the Forrester world. I mean, yeah, BigQuery is pretty much, you know, was data warehousing before data warehousing was a term that we used. So it's, you know, like it makes a lot of sense. A lot of these, you know, measures of excellence are, you know, kind of built around BigQuery and what it can do, just because that's a lot of people's first exposure to data warehousing and how you can use it. And yeah, five out of five, perfect score. Nice. <laughs> On 19 perfect. categories. Good as it gets. Good as it gets. There's a lot of weirdness that happens in these Forrester and Gartner things, having experienced the process. It's just, you know, like, how well does the analyst like you? <laughs> how much are you paying the analyst? You know, all these things. And they say it's, you know, there's nothing to do with how much you pay, but it doesn't feel that way when you're in the conversation. Well, the conversation starts like, we've got this product, BigQuery, we would like you to compare it against the rest of the market. And so, I mean, if you go in with a a market-leading product and ask Forrester to compare it with the rest of the market, then for sure you're going to come out on top. Well, and usually I think the winner is the one who educated the Forrester on creating the criteria that define the category. Yeah, and so what will happen, though, is typically as it matures, you know, the first couple of versions of a wave, I think, are very much vendor-led. They do start asking more and more of customers, like, what do they want to see? What are they looking for in the space? And so that does, it does start to shift, or a new and upcomer will come into the space that has a whole different perspective, and then that will shift dramatically the, the wave or the quadrant. And so that will also potentially result in a thing, and then that's, that's a whole different conversation. But analyst business is a weird business, <laughs> so... You never get fired for, you know, hiring, you know, buying the top of the wave, right? Yeah, it's true. Unless it's IBM, in which case you'll get fired now. Unless it's IBM. Well, <laughs> some companies, it's okay. Well, Cloud SQL for SQL Server now finally has the ability to integrate with Active Directory. 
on Google. So this capability is critical requirement to simplify identity management and streamline the immigration of existing SQL Server workloads that rely on AD for access control. This is a milestone in Google Cloud's ongoing commitment to enterprise customers meet you where you are, as long as you are on GCP AD <laughs> and not on-premise. So yeah, meeting you where you are, sort of, but only if you're using this one thing. And if you're not using that thing, then we'll give you the ability to create our thing, but then make our thing talk to your thing with an on-premise domain trust. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I met you where you were at with more complexity. To be said, but isn't that true of every cloud provider? It's the exact same story. So is this more AD's fault, I'm guessing, than anything else? I mean, don't get me started on AD. (laughs) 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 Yes, it's AD's fault. (laughs) Moving to Azure. They are strengthening and optimizing compliance in the Azure Security Center this month. They've released several new compliance management capabilities to the Azure Security Center, including Azure Security Benchmark Integration with SecureScore, a new section for downloading your audit certification reports, integration of shared responsibility models, details into the product, and a workflow automation functionality. As a standard now includes ISO 27001, NIST SP 800-53R4, and PCI DSS 321 and more. Azure has given you the ability to download your compliance reports, including your ISO standard, your PCI, your SOC uh, reports, all via their service trust portal, so they don't have to respond to your vendors anymore, just like Amazon did a year ago or two years ago when they said, we're tired of emailing this to people with NDAs. (laughs) And they've also, like I mentioned, released the ability to configure workflow automation for regulatory compliance data. This allows you to trigger a logic app automatically anytime there's a status change on a regulatory compliance assessment and run any action based on that event. So you can actually do auto remediation for your compliance, which is kind of cool. That is really cool. I mean, just generating the event is super cool because that's always annoying to find out the hard way, you know, when you go and refresh the docs because you have to because you're being audited and to find out that it's changed. Not good. Never good. Well, we just mentioned Google's success in the data warehouse, and I knew they were the number one before I even opened the article because they had included in the press release the picture of the wave, which showed them predominantly up to the top right. So in true form, you know, Microsoft was named a leader in the Forrester Wave for function as a service platform, but in their press release, they didn't put the screenshot of the Wave, which is the telltale way of knowing that they are not number one. <laughs> and so after I filled the form out to download the copy of the Wave from them, of course, I found that Amazon was number one. <laughs> and then GCP was also very highly rated, very similar to the Data Warehouse one, actually, just slightly rotated. Azure Functions was selected in a leader portion of the way because of the following, according to Microsoft. They develop an end-to-end allows you to build and debug your functions locally on any major platform, as well as deploy and monitor them in the cloud. Stateful workloads can be supported via durable function extensions and enterprise-grade fast platform allowing you to deploy on multiple environments, including Kubernetes, which also Google has and also AWS. So congratulations, Azure. We appreciate you. You know, it's interesting to me that when Amazon's on top of these waves, they never release press releases on any of them. It's only Google and Azure who release press releases about the waves and the magic quadrants when they're in the top spots. You know who should have released a press release is Alibaba. I was shocked to find out how high they were. (laughs) in this quadrant and to read about their service and how big it can scale and and what it supports. Yeah. It's very possible that they did. I just don't follow Alibaba (laughs) for the podcast. Exactly. (laughs) Like we barely follow Oracle and we barely follow any of the other ones like digital ocean, even though they're one of my favorite cloud providers, just there's so much going on just between our big three vendors and occasionally an Oracle story that I, this podcast would be in two hours long if we covered Alibaba. Yeah. And we're, we're largely following Oracle to troll them. So, you know, yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> Until they deserve to be praised. Then we'll be fair. Great bandwidth pricing. Great bandwidth pricing, yes, for sure. That's it for me on the new news. Peter, do you want to take us through the lightning round? Lightning round. 
Let's talk about the fact that backup for Azure Managed Disk is now generally available. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Back that up again. What? (laughs) (laughs) You should have made the noise. Beep, beep, (laughs) beep, beep. (laughs) Amazon EKS now supports Elastic Fabric Adapter. Oh, you mean the thing that it was designed for to begin with? Great. Thanks. Moving on, since... Everybody's quiet today. <laughs> Amazon WorkDocs offers additional sharing controls through its Android app. Oh, so that's what they're using WorkDocs for. It's those robots in the warehouses. They send WorkDocs to each other. That makes sense. Oh, I see. Yeah. Not the, the actual Android itself. I just wonder what the, the mobile UI is for WorkDocs, considering the, the full-on browser experience for WorkDocs. Yikes. Amazon SageMaker now supports private Docker registry authentication. Meaning someone paid Docker for a lot of money and wanted to be able to use it with SageMaker. Well, no, this is internal repos too. This is like, I'm super excited about this. I don't have anything funny to, no. to quip about this, but it's, you know, like this is build your own images and be able to use them in SageMaker. Are you trying to say that I should have had this as a main show topic? Maybe, but if I had, I would have had to do my homework in order to do that. So I'm not going to, you know, complain too much. <laughs> Moving on to Amazon API Gateway, which now provides IAM condition keys for governing endpoint authorization and logging configurations. What? No tagging? Yeah, well, I was uh, hopefully that, you know, it's the condition to do the endpoint, but only if it's somehow in the role of, I know what I'm doing. That's my, what I'm hoping for. Mm. And Amazon Timestream now supports Amazon VPC endpoints. We're getting very close to crossing the streams. VPC streams and time streams. (laughs) Careful. I just saw, I think, two of the Ghostbusters movies. So you watch Ghostbusters, you didn't watch Aliens like we mocked you mercilessly for last time with the huggers? (laughs) You know what? I haven't watched it, and I promise you I'm not going to. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. However... What I will tell you is that you can now create forecasting systems faster with automated workflows and notifications in Amazon's forecast. I'm forecasting that I won't be using this still. AWS Config adds pagination support for advanced queries that contain aggregate functions. Oh, sweet God, finally. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about a describe action that you you regret. (laughs) Like, how do I interrupt this again? Because it's just going for days. And now my console yeah. doesn't work because I hit my API limit. <laughs> AWS WAF adds support for request header insertion. I mean, I feel like we're just rebuilding CloudFront again with WAF. Like, remember when we could do this with CloudFront? We we're like, oh, you can now do inserting of headers with CloudFront. Apparently, when we added WAF to that, that broke it. And now they're giving you the same feature back again. Thanks. Appreciate it. Well, WAF is part of CloudFront, so it makes sense. Amazon Document DB with MongoDB compatibility now supports event subscriptions. Ding. Sorry, that was my my event triggering every time you had to say that on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. We are also announcing AWS Step Functions integration with Amazon EMR on EKS. Well, there you go. That's complexity on top of complexity on top of complexity, all powered by complexity. That's a fantastic one. I really appreciate it. On a VM. On a VM. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. Debugging that is going to be super fun. (laughs) (laughs) And with increased timeout values, that could just run in a circle forever. You never know. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We're going to have one of those apology tours where 
let me tell you how I accidentally spent a bajillion dollars on Amazon overnight, you know, cycling through web pages, and then they gave me a credit if I came out and told you the error of my ways. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to Ryan does a thing where I screw that up somehow. <laughs> <laughs> the Amazon EMR now supports Amazon EC2 instance metadata service version 2. Which tells me exactly that this was released in October, and the two pizza box teams are now finally caught up with their announcements. So... They're only you know, <laughs> yeah. 35 episodes behind on the CloudPod. <laughs> and I assume that we'll now see a rash of these EC2 Instance Metadata Service V2 support announcements coming. We'll never talk about them here again. But I did want to highlight this one because it was the first one I've seen where someone's called it out that they now support this. AWS Security Hub integrates with Amazon Macy now to automatically ingest sensitive data findings for improved centralized security posture management. Can we make this a day zero requirement for any security tool to just integrate with the Security Hub? Like it's... It's getting kind of ridiculous now, guys. Well, but it's tough if the service existed before Security Hub. But this one didn't because this for sure doesn't apply to Macy Classic. So this is going to be Macy V2. Oh, well, yeah. okay. All right, all right. Fair enough. Day one, maybe. Day zero is for CloudFormation support. Day one for Security Hub. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Amazon Macy supports TLS 1.2? Because <laughs> that's not a day one, a day zero either. <laughs> Trying to make a tags joke, but I don't got it. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, Amazon SageMaker Autopilot adds model explainability. Still waiting for someone to be able to explain ability of this to me. This is how I'm going to get into to machine learning. I'm going to have the machine learning explain itself to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't want to write the model. I don't want to write the model so that it can write the algorithm. I want it to write the model that then it uses to write the algorithm. Why is your confidence value so low? Come on. And then it explains. Mm. This is just so when, when somebody ends up in court, they can say, but SageMaker told us it would be fine. <laughs> and I want to sleep while my car drives me to my destination. I want to do nothing. That's what I want to do. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you all for participating. I'm going to give it to the crossing of the streams. Yeah, no, that deserves it. Justin. Deserving of the, very deserving of the point. Love Ghostbusters. I just love it. I thought we agreed not to do any jokes about streams after that bottle thing. When did we do that? <laughs> I don't remember that. If there's anything about lightning round. There are no rules. Like we, we pretend there's rules, but there's really no rules. There's in no this rules. Game. Yeah. I did put a fantastic screenshot in our Slack room in honor of the podcast from last week being released, where I gave you know Peter a free a free mask with a face hugger attached to it. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you can check that out if you're in our Slack team on our general channel in honor of him not knowing what the huggers were from Aliens. And I want to get that in a t-shirt so badly. I want to, I want to, I want to, yeah. I, it actually, I got that from, from a t-shirt. t-shirt. So it's, it's, it is a t-shirt. I think it's on Teespring or some other site. I, didn't, I should link to that, but I just, I took the picture because I like the picture, but I was trying to find something appropriate for face huggers. There's actually people who have made face hugger face masks for COVID, which I thought was sort of funny. It took a little while to actually find that. So there you go. All right, well, I'll take my point and I'll take us on to things coming up. And it is summit season once again. Summits will not be in person as it's still too early. COVID vaccines are still rolling out across the globe and it's not quite time yet for in person, but they typically do these in the spring. And since it's spring, they're all online. And so the first up is the public sector summit, which will be April 15th through the 16th. And then the Amazon Summit Online Americas will be May 12th through the 13th. And then Japan and Asia will be May 10th through 12th and May 18th through the 19th for India, Asian territory, and New Zealand, Australia. Canada will be May 12th, Latin America May 12th, Brazil May 12th, 
and many more from there. So we will be checking out the AWS Summit Online Americas May 12th or 13th. We will not be doing predictions because summits never have really any luck with that. So we won't be doing that. But that's available to you guys. If you're trying to get started on the Amazon Cloud, you're listening to our podcast because you're trying to stay up to date. Summits are a great place to do that. We recommend checking those out. If you're a more advanced 400 level person, maybe just check out the replays because that'll probably be the right level of detail you guys need because they are pretty set up for people just kind of getting into the cloud versus the more practiced folks in the space. Google Financial Services Summit is also coming up. This will be on May 27th. This is for all your financial services needs. Special verticalized Google Cloud overview for financial services. Check that out on May 27th. And then Azure Storage Day is coming up again on April 29th, where I look forward to ultra premium ultra storage to be announced from Azure. So do check that out if you want to see that live. That'll be on April 29th or however they're doing that. And then we don't typically talk about the CICD vendors, but I did see this one. So Harness.io, which is a CICD platform, they have the Unscripted Conference coming up June 16th through the 17th. And it highlighted to me because Dave Farley, who's the author of Continuous Delivery book, which is pretty well known in the Continuous Delivery space, is doing the keynote at Harness Unscripted. And so I am linking to that as well, just because Dave Farley is fantastic. I've heard him speak a couple of times. I've read the book. He's great. And I definitely highly recommend. I'm sure he's going to be talking about Harness.io and how they're using Continuous Delivery, but he'll also probably talk about just the practice and the process of Continuous Delivery, which is valuable too. And then, of course, we have all the other things that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, all coming up very, very soon. Check that out in our show notes. That's it for this week in the cloud. You're just stunned with amazingness. <laughs> Obviously busy signing up for those things. Yep. Shocked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But great. Another fantastic week in the cloud. Talk it. to you next week here in the cloud. Take it easy. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net for sign up instructions. Thank you.